Good morning, church. Our reading comes from Matthew 4, 1 through 11, and this can be found on page 809 in your pew Bible. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Thanks be to God. Okay, good morning, everybody. I see daylight savings time has struck our attendance this morning, but good to have you here. And um, we are here in our third Sunday of Lent, and throughout Lent, we have been working our way through Matthew chapter 4, which focuses primarily on Jesus' wilderness temptation. I want to express my thanks to Pastor Joel for preaching uh, the last few weeks, and he's done a great job of showing how Satan's temptations of Jesus have been temptations primarily to avoid suffering. As Pastor Joel has pointed out, Satan's basic line throughout the temptations has been essentially Satan saying to Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, then you shouldn't have to suffer. Because isn't that what being a child of God is all about? Getting out of suffering. And Jesus' response these past two weeks to these first Two temptations has been no being a child of God isn't about getting out of suffering being a child of God is about being loved by God and my father's love is with me in and through suffering in fact it was my father's love that led me into this wilderness and we saw that all the way back at the very end of chapter 3 on Ash Wednesday when we began this season of Lent, we looked at the baptism of Jesus Christ, and immediately upon being baptized, the Father declares his love over the Son. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then the very first assignment that the Father gives to the Son on the first day of his public ministry, as it were, is to go out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the Father's love is not divorced from his leading at times into places of hardship and suffering. And we're seeing that here in Jesus' life. And 
This is the point that Pastor Joel has been making the last two weeks and the point of Jesus' wilderness temptation is that even though God sometimes leads us into places of suffering, he never leads us out of his love. We're always in his love. God's love and human suffering do not stand opposed to each other, but are woven together, many times in ways that we can't understand or make sense of, but we're never outside of God's love. So this morning we move on to the third and the final temptation. And this third temptation, like the first two, is in many respects a temptation of suffering avoidance. I'm going to make two points of application out of this, uh, of this temptation here. But before I, I get into this temptation in Matthew chapter 4, I want to go way, way back to Genesis chapter 1 to get a running start at this temptation. Because in order to most fully understand this third temptation, we have to understand the broader backstory about the relationship between Jesus and the devil. So this is a sort of origins story here we're going to tell in a moment. So give me a few minutes to tell this origin story of Jesus and the devil, and then we're going to get a running start back into uh, Matthew chapter 4 and this third temptation. All right, so if you've got your Bible, and you should have brought your Bible with church, uh, to church with you today, if you're new and you didn't bring your Bible, you're forgiven. But if you're a regular tenor and you didn't bring your Bible, I judge you thoroughly. No, I don't. Uh, but if you have your Bible, turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one there in the pew rack. Uh, but turn back to Genesis chapter 1, to the very beginning of the Scriptures. Keep your finger or some, uh, something in Matthew 4, because we're going to be back there in a moment. But in Genesis chapter 1, we're given the account of God creating the world. And by the end of chapter 1, God has made everything, and we're told that humanity is the last and best of all that God has made, the pinnacle of creation. So Genesis 1.26, you can look there in your text. But Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him male and female, he created them. So in Genesis 1, 26 through 27, we read that God has made humanity in his own image according to his likeness, and that he has appointed humanity as the rulers over all that God has made. So this great good world that God has made, human beings are destined to rule over it. So, so far, so good. But then you skip forward to chapter 2, verse 17, and God gives a single command to humanity, and the command is, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat from any tree in the garden, but that one tree, don't eat from that tree. And of course, we all know how the story goes in the life of Adam and Eve, because it's the same story in our life. The moment we're told that there's one thing we can't do, that's the one thing that we most want to do. And sure enough, that's the one thing that Adam and Eve do do. But Adam and Eve don't get there all on their own, because we read in Genesis chapter 3 that a serpent enters the garden and subtly suggests to Eve that disobeying God would be a blessing. Now, in the New Testament, we can look at 
verses like Romans 16.20 or Revelation 12.9, we learn that Satan, the devil, is involved with or in or as the serpent. So this isn't your garden variety talking snake here in Genesis chapter 3. This ultimately is the Satan, which is Hebrew for adversary, and it's where we get the term Satan. So Satan is not a proper name. The term Satan is just a Hebrew expression of the word Satan or adversary. So what's the adversary's motivation here? Why is he trying to wreck Adam and Eve's life? Now, I preached on this topic, this question, back in Lent of February, or Lent of 2020, so almost three years ago. I expect that you probably all remember it, like you remember all of my sermons, but there might be a few of you uh, who are new who may not remember that one. So let me just briefly recount some of the things I said there. But in the Christian tradition, broadly considered, I mean from the time of the apostles all the way up to the present, there have been two basic streams of Christianity. There's Eastern Christianity and there's Western Christianity. We're situated in Western Christianity, and it's how uh, we, our whole context, <clears throat> but each uh, tradition of Christianity, the East and Western streams, have a little bit of nuances to the way they tell the origin story of the devil. And in my uh, doctoral work, which was on uh, St. Irenaeus, and he's a second century uh, Eastern church father, he was a proponent, he's the, one of the earliest church fathers to speak of this Eastern way of talking about the devil. And uh, I have uh, studied him, and then I've looked at a lot through Scripture. I am myself persuaded by this Eastern account of the devil, and I think it makes a lot of sense of what we're going to read in Matthew 4. So let me just kind of re- let me just uh, uh, outlay a little bit of what this is. The basic gist of Irenaeus's devil narrative is that the devil's first sin was not pride against God up in heaven, but it was envy of Adam and Eve down on earth. And important to this envy narrative is the idea that humanity has been made uniquely in the image of God, and humanity has been created to be the rulers of all that God has made. So in this context, it's humanity, not the angels, that are destined to be the highest of all of God's creatures. So the angel who would go on to become the adversary or the Satan was originally created as a steward, an angelic servant of humanity who was appointed to watch over the world on behalf of humanity until such time as humanity came of age, so to speak, and was able to exercise dominion over the earth. And then at the proper time, the steward was to hand over the keys of the kingdom, so to speak, to humanity. So if you can think of your, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, the steward is Lord Denethor, right? And so he's supposed to hand over the keys of the kingdom of Gondor to the proper king. This is kind of the arrangement that the Eastern narrative is telling of uh, the devil and humanity. But the steward secretly believes himself to be more worthy of the earth's throne than humanity. So driven by envy, the steward deceives humanity into disobeying God's one law, and he gets them to disqualify themselves. Having successfully deceived Adam and Eve, the steward, who has now become the Satan, he has now become the adversary, 
He took possession of the world and has ruled it ever since as a tyrant or an imposter king. So in short, God creates the world, this good world. He gives it to humanity, and then Satan swoops in and he steals it for himself. And in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, God steps into the garden and he says to the serpent, he pronounces judgment over the serpent. And you can look there in 3, 14 to 15. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, because you've stolen what I've given to humanity, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Which is God's way of saying that one day, A child of Eve, a son of Eve, will arise who will take back what the steward has stolen. So in this envy narrative, this Eastern envy narrative, the primary spoil of war, the thing that humanity and Satan are contesting over is dominion over the earth. The prize being fought over is the kingdom of the world. And then all throughout the biblical narrative, then, Satan is watching... He's always watching for this promised son of Eve who is supposed to come one day and overthrow him and reclaim the world for humanity. So who is this promised son of Eve? Is it perhaps Abel? Maybe it's Abraham. Maybe it's Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Job, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon. But no, However powerful those sons of Eve have been, whatever capacity for the miraculous they had, and some of them had capacity for the miraculous, death had taken all of them. So, ever watchful, Satan, his eye has roamed the earth watching and waiting for the arrival of this promised son of Eve this mortal foe who will come to strike him down. And that takes us then to Matthew 4, 8 through 11. So you can turn back now in your Bible to Matthew. Because it's finally here in Matthew 4, right after Jesus' baptism and the public announcement that this is the Son of God. This is the Son of Eve. It's in this moment here in Matthew 4 that Satan and the promised Son of Eve meet for the first time. And it's in this first meeting that the adversary, the Satan, tries to do to the son of Eve the same thing that he had done to Adam and Eve in the garden to get him to disqualify himself. Now, the first two attempts have failed, and so he tries a third temptation. And in this third temptation, the Satan, the adversary... He sues for peace. All right, so Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, Satan takes Jesus to the highest, to a high mountain. And in a vision, he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now, what does Satan show Jesus? Just imagine a bit. No doubt he shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world and their glory in that day. Shows, them, shows Jesus the farthest reaches of the Roman Empire, perhaps, stretching all the way to Spain and then down across the Straits 
of Gibraltar, which in those days were called the Pillars of Hercules, on into North Africa and then across North Africa to Egypt and to the kingdoms with the Great Pyramids. But not just to the west, but also to the east, to the Greek countries of Asia, across the deserts of the Middle East, to the great Parthian Empire, which was the other superpower that rivaled Rome in those days. Then further east to the Indian empires and all the way to China, to her great dynasties, a whole world unto itself, vast in wealth and learning and history. But not just east, also to the north, to the Caucasus and on to the barbarian tribes of Germania and the Scandinavian countries and across the channel into the British Isles. But that was just all the known world. No doubt Satan also showed Jesus the Americas, the great nomadic tribes of North America and the great empires of South America with pyramids to rival that of Egypt where no Jewish foot had ever stood and even knew existed. And then back across the ocean to the great cities and peoples of Africa. And Satan shows Jesus all of the glories and wonders of the kingdoms of the earth. And he says, all of these I will give to you if you would but worship me. Now, what kind of temptation is this? Is this just a temptation to worldly wealth? Sort of like Satan is saying to Jesus, hey, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a million dollars if you worship me. What? Not enough? How about a billion dollars? I'll give you a trillion dollars. Still not enough? I'm going to write a number down on a piece of paper. I'm going to slide it over here, you know. And Jesus turns it over and it says, all the kingdoms of the world. Is this just a temptation to worldly wealth? It's just a really, really big bribe. It's not. The kingdoms of the world are exactly what the son of Eve has come to claim. Satan is offering Jesus the very thing that he's come for but without a fight. He's saying, look, Jesus, I know you've been sent by God to reclaim the kingdoms of the world, but there's no need for us to fight about it. Just like Pharaoh made Joseph the governor of Egypt and placed everything under Joseph's power, I will make you my vice regent, and I will place everything under your power. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. But this is the final straw, and Jesus, it appears, has run out of patience with Satan's temptations, and he can get the sense in the text that he's somewhat insulted, as no doubt he should be. And he says, Be gone from me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Because Jesus has not come to be the vassal king of a rebellious steward. He has come to be the king. And Jesus knows, even if Satan does not yet know, that the cross and the kingdom go together. And God has sent him to reclaim the world by dying for it, by bearing its sin and shame and suffering. And so he rejects Satan's peace offering, and he turns his heart and his mind towards the cross. And I think there's a necessary word for us here as we seek to follow the example of Jesus. 
Many of us are peacemakers. I think most of us generally are peacemakers. We would rather avoid conflict and live in peace. And peacemaking is a good thing. The book of Proverbs in the Old Testament says that those who make plans of peace will have lives of joy, that it's a man's glory to overlook an offense. And then Jesus himself taught us in the Sermon on the Mount that the peacemakers will be blessed and that we should turn the other cheek when we are struck. And that's all true. But when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, he didn't mean blessed are those who make peace for themselves. He meant blessed are those who make peace for others, for those who can't make peace for themselves. For those who need help, our help to make peace. The reason Jesus went to the cross, the reason he suffered and died, the reason he took up our offenses and entered into conflict with the devil was for our sake, because he loves us. And he knew that we would never find our way to peace without his suffering. And so in love for us, he rejected the devil's peace offer and he went to war on our behalf. And in doing so, he has given us an example that we can follow. I tend to be, by personality, a conflict-adverse person. I'd rather just overlook an offense than take an offense. I'd rather turn the other cheek than get into a slapping match with you. And that can be all well and good when it relates to me personally. But when I overlook an offense done to you, when I turn my cheek and look away while you're being slapped, that's not Jesus' idea of peacemaking. And here in the wilderness, Jesus is given the opportunity to make peace in a way that would have saved him from the suffering of the cross but he didn't take it, and the reason he didn't take it is because he loves us. Not because he loves suffering, not because he loves conflict, but because he loves us. And he knew that the only way to really, truly make lasting and eternal peace for us would be for him to enter into conflict with the adversary and suffer on our behalf. So maybe some of you here this morning, the Lord is calling you into a place of conflict. A place of conflict and suffering that you want to avoid, but you know that you shouldn't. Not everyone is called to conflict at every moment. So don't just go out picking fights, right? <laughs> but perhaps some of you, for some of you, there is a conflict that God is calling you into. But you're trying to run from it. And you're trying to make a peace that you shouldn't be making. And in making peace for yourself, you're leaving someone else in the lurch. Someone who can't make peace on their own. And their pathway to peace is through your suffering. The pathway to their peace may require you to enter into conflict, not avoid conflict, not do an end around conflict. 
was trying to think through a number of ways that this might work out in our lives. The, here's just a few. I'm sure there's more than what I've come up with, but maybe I think this can happen in parenting. I can say this for myself. Maybe your kids are doing things that are not good for them, things that are robbing them of peace, but you just turn and look away as a parent because you're more concerned about your own peace. And it's too much conflict and disruption in the home to fight for peace. It's just simpler for you to kind of cocoon yourself in your own peace and turn a blind eye to the pain that your children are experiencing as they inflict themselves with various practices. Maybe it's at school. Maybe you're a student in a school, maybe a kid in your class or a kid in your friend group is being picked on or bullied and they have no peace. But you turn and look away because you're more concerned about your own peace. And what, what would it cost you to come to their aid, to, to, to enter into their conflict on their behalf, to try to make peace for them? Then you might get bullied, you might get picked on, and so you don't want that. And so you just turn and you look away and you quest after your own peace. Maybe it's at work the same way. Maybe someone isn't being treated fairly, one of your fellow coworkers. But if you stood up for them against your boss, you might be treated unfairly too. And so you turn and look away because you're more concerned about your own peace. Maybe it's in your marriage or your friendship. Maybe your spouse or your friend needs a word of truth spoken into their life, a word that could provoke conflict between you and them. And you're avoiding saying the hard word, not for their sake, not because you love them, but for your own sake, because you love yourself. And you turn away from the potential relational conflict because you are more concerned about your own peace. Maybe it's a matter of some aspect of social justice. And it's so easy for those who are in positions of power to to make peace for themselves in a way that leaves the weak in positions of marginalization and oppression. And maybe it's not any of those ways. Maybe it's some other way that you feel like the Lord is calling you to step into a place that will inevitably involve conflict. But you're avoiding the conflict, not because you think the Lord isn't calling you to that, but because you don't want to have to lose your peace. And you're hiding behind this quest for peace. I don't know your situation this morning, but all of us at various points in our lives, not all the time, but at various points in our lives, we'll be tempted to turn away from a conflict in order to make peace for ourselves in a way that will leave someone else in a place of distress. And when that time comes, we need to remember the way that Jesus made peace. He did it by entering into conflict on our behalf. I want to give a second point of application here that I think is an important reminder. We've been talking a lot about voluntarily stepping in to suffering. This is what Jesus in particular is doing here in this third temptation. Satan is offering him a way out of suffering, and Jesus voluntarily steps in 
to the path of suffering. So when we think about voluntarily stepping into suffering, there's another principle, though, that we need to remember. And it's this. God doesn't always call us to conflict and suffering. If we follow the thread of Jesus' quote, Jesus, when he's tempted, he quotes three times from the book of Deuteronomy. And if we follow back the thread of Jesus' quote to Deuteronomy chapter 6, you can turn there if you want to, you don't have to, but Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 13. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses is reminding the Israelites about how God has brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land. And this is what Moses says. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your father, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. In verses 10 through 11, Moses is reminding the people about how God will bless them, how he will give them great prosperity as they come into the land. They will have cities and houses they didn't build, furniture they didn't make, cisterns they didn't dig, vineyards and olive groves they didn't plant. All of this prosperity God is going to give to them. They will be brought into a land full of bounty. So clearly God is not always out to call us into places of suffering. He's not always trying to get us into suffering and hardship and burden bearing. Sometimes he leads us into the shadowed valley. This is true. But sometimes he leads us into green pastures and beside quiet waters. And Moses tells the Israelites here in Deuteronomy 6 to take care lest they forget the Lord. And I think this is a good and necessary admonition in both directions has been true in my life because some of us have such a robust theology of blessing that we can forget that sometimes we are called to suffer. We just think that the only place that Jesus will ever lead us is into the green pastures because high quiet waters. That's the only place Jesus takes us. And we need to be reminded that sometimes he calls us down into the shadow valley. But others of us have such a robust theology of suffering that we sometimes forget we are called to blessings. That we think that the only place that Jesus ever takes us is down into the shouted valley. That's the only place he wants for us. So when we come to the fork in the road and we see the green pastures and the quiet waters over here and we see the shadowed valley over here, well, it's always the shattered valley, shadow valley. Right? And I've been in that spot at times in my life as well. Right? That mindset needs to be reminded that sometimes Christ calls us into the green pastures. And the key to holding these together is in Moses' admonition to Israel to take care that we don't forget the Lord. Because the Lord is the one who leads us into the shadowed valleys, and the Lord is the one who leads us into the green pastures. And when Jesus said, that we should take up our cross and follow him, he didn't mean that we should pick up every single cross that we see. 
or that we should voluntarily enter into every dark valley that we come across. Why was Jesus, here I'm back in Matthew 4, but why was Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by the devil? Very beginning, verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus was in the wilderness experiencing the suffering, the temptation of the devil, because he had been led there by the Lord. Why did Jesus go to the cross? It's because he was led there by the Lord. Whether he was being led to a wedding at Cana, time of celebration, or to the cross of Calvary, he always remembered the Lord, and he went where the Spirit of God led him. So don't go where the Spirit of God isn't leading you. There's a limit to how much suffering you and I are capable of absorbing on behalf of others. And if we don't acknowledge that we have limits, we're going to get ourselves in some very dark and dysfunctional spaces. Some places of suffering we simply cannot avoid. There are places we would not choose. We weren't looking for them. They are thrust upon us, and we can't avoid them. Sometimes suffering just happens to us. But other places of suffering are places that we choose to step into. We don't just get drafted for suffering. We volunteer for suffering. And Jesus hasn't asked us to volunteer for every opportunity of suffering that we find. So I was thinking maybe of some signs, perhaps, that you're out over your skis volunteering for suffering that you shouldn't be volunteering for? How do we know uh, when this is happening? Here's some, some things you can think about, maybe. First, I would say, is when you're becoming exhausted. Now, that's not a sure telltale sign that you are volunteering for suffering that Jesus isn't asking you to volunteer for. Because sometimes I think God does lead us into places that exhaust us, right? And he asks us to step intentionally into places that leave us exhausted. We take on projects that will expend all of our strength. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're outside of where God is leading us. But when we're in those places, we need to be listening particularly well. Because now we're getting to the end of our strength. So the second sign I would say is, are you becoming bitter towards God? If you're starting to get a bitter posture, because you're volunteering for some form of combat, as it were, or some point of suffering, or you're taking up some cross, and you find yourself becoming increasingly bitter, maybe even bitter towards God, that's probably a sign that you are engaging in some voluntary form of suffering that Jesus is not asking you to engage in. And then on the heels of that, I would say this too. Are you becoming judgmental and angry towards others? When you find your joy in the Lord is evaporating as you more and more try to lean into this thing, whatever it is, and you find yourself becoming bitter, 
and angry and resentful. It's probably a sign that you are serving beyond your grace. God gives us grace to do the things that he's called us to do. And when we serve beyond his grace, it means we have to start serving in our own strength. And when we serve in our own strength, we lose our joy and we become exhausted, bitter, angry, and judgmental. And if that's you or you're in danger of becoming like that, it's possible that you may be picking up a cross that Jesus has not asked you to pick up. So we've been talking all about suffering this season of Lent, and Pastor Greg mentioned it here at the beginning of the service. Out in the hallway, we have three posters, one for each week of Lent, and each poster highlights a martyr from a different part of church history. And the testimonies of the martyrs are meant to inspire us to live sacrificially for Christ and his kingdom, to not run away from suffering. But you know that in the early church, Jesus' theology of suffering was so successful, was taken so much to heart, and became so valorized by the early church that many Christians began to intentionally seek out martyrdom. And the bishops of the church had had to step in and tell the people to stop. They had to say, if God calls you to martyrdom, then be a faithful martyr. But don't seek out martyrdom. I think that's a helpful reminder as we focus on suffering in this Lenten season. There will be some paths of suffering that Jesus will ask us to walk down for the sake of others. And when he asks us to walk down a path of suffering into a conflict for the sake of another, when he's asking us, then he will give us the grace to walk that path. But we need to let ourselves be led. Don't assume that Jesus is calling you to meet every single need that you see. He himself is the only one with shoulders big enough to pick up every single cross in the world. And he has picked up your cross, and he has picked up my cross so that we could have peace. So I was finishing up my sermon, putting the finishing touches on it this morning, as I always do when I come in. I got done with it, and I don't feel like I've said enough about how much Jesus loves us. And that's what I feel like is the main punchline of like every sermon I should ever preach, is at the end of the day, Jesus loves you, and that's what should be said. So I would just want to reiterate this again. It's because Jesus has made peace for us through picking up our cross, that we can be used by him to help make peace for others. We have to receive the peace of God through Jesus that he's given to us in Jesus freely before we can be agents of peace in the lives of others. To run out into the world trying to make peace everywhere in our own strength, it's a hopeless quest that will leave us exhausted and bitter. But when we are led by Jesus who is himself the Prince of Peace, who has made peace for us through his own suffering and has given his peace to us through his Holy Spirit who dwells inside of our heart, who God has poured out on us richly. 
He teaches us how we too can be peacemakers. So let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, his obedience and love to his heavenly father, his love expressed to us, and then in a like posture, keep our eyes fixed on obedience to Christ to be led by him and being making peace for others. Father, thank you that you gave us Jesus when we could not make peace for ourselves. You made peace for us through Christ. We thank you, Jesus, that you did not turn away from conflict. You did not turn away from suffering, even though it would cost you your very life. And not a peaceful and calm death, but a gruesome and hard death, full of suffering and pain, and yet you went straight into the hurricane for our sake and out of your love for your Father. And I pray, Lord, that you would make that true of us as well, that we would, in our love for you, in obedience to you, and because you have poured out your love into our hearts, we would follow where you lead, that we might be used to make peace in the lives of others as you lead us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.